Good evening and welcome to the Mid-Hudson Intergroup Big Book Step Study Retreat. We would like to welcome Lori C. from Canada. Thank you so much, Lori. Take it away. All right. Well, thank you very much. It's a, it's a privilege. I was scheduled to do this, what, a year and a couple months ago. Um, and some, some, I, some things intervened. Uh, and now I'm able to do it by Zoom, which in, in many ways is uh, very convenient. Um, I'm going to start sharing my screen uh, right off the bat. Uh, well, I'll give you an overview and I'll say a few things before I do this. Um, I'm going to be talking about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I don't know if there are any real newcomers here who don't know about that book, but it was written for alcoholics. Um, it, is, it contained the original set of directions that was agreed upon by approximately 100 alcoholics um, written by Bill Wilson, for the most part, one of the co-founders of AA. And it has remained basically intact. The first 164 pages have remained basically intact since its publication in 1939. It is considered by many people to be an inspired book, uh, God-inspired by those who are more religious than I am. I, I think it's an inspired book as, as any work of, a great work of poetry or, or prose is. Um, because it's, it contains within every sentence the whole. You know, it's very consistent, internally consistent. I hope to be able to show that as we go through the book. Um, I just want to say this. I am, in many ways, a big book thumper. Um, as a matter of fact, let me, let me share a screen for a moment, uh, just so you get a, an idea of what that looks like. There is a big book thumper. That's a joke. Okay, it's not a very good one, but there's a joke anyway. Um, I guess some people are too young to remember Bambi, huh? Um, but this is uh, this thumper from from the big, from Bambi. Anyway, that was pretty lame. Uh, but although I am a big book thumper, I am not one of those people who says that the big book is the only way of working the steps. First of all, I think that would be contrary to the inclusiveness of OA uh, and the group conscience of OA. And second of all, it's not the experience of people I know. I, many of my mentors, my idols in this uh, fellowship who have been in this program longer than I have, have been absent longer than I have, have lost more weight than I have, have, uh, have uh, are more spiritual than I think I am, um, don't use the big book. Or while they read it and they love, they love the language of it, many of them, they don't use the set of directions that are contained in the big book. Secondly, those of us who are big book thumpers, who can cite chapter and verse, the particular page, and you know, have it sort of memorized in our mind, although I haven't memorized the, the page numbers, we disagree on some of our interpretations of the big book. Uh, you know, when we get to step 10, I'll talk about the different interpretations of that. Some of us don't even like, uh, don't even agree that the step four instructions in the big book are as good as other step four instructions. So who have I to say that the only way of working the steps uh, is um, to the big book? What I can say is this, the big book approach to what our problem is and what our solution is and how quickly to work the steps and how the, the, the uh, uh, priority of the quickness of working the steps 
can be mind-opening, mind-boggling often to people who are used to other ways of doing the steps. So it's a good way to challenge your own sense of how you're doing it, how you're working the program. And it's also a good way of thinking about how to uh, think about carrying the message in addition. Um, I think you'll find, even if you're not a big book thumper, that this approach to the book, that this uh, that using the book is of some great value. And I'll talk about that in a few moments. So I want to start off by showing you a picture of a man you've never met. His name is Wally Kabisky. He's passed on. Uh, he was a mentor of mine in many, many ways um, as a sort of a, almost an older brother. I worked for him for a while. We were very good friends, very close friends. And he was an alcoholic who had literally been a gutter drunk. He had been in the gutter and had been rescued from literally the gutter of my main street where the hotels are and stuff uh, by a number of AAers and changed, uh, became uh, one of the most impressive people I've ever met, uh, got his PhD after, after being a grade nine dropout and a juvenile delinquent. And he introduced me to all these incredible uh, AAers who had uh, also been in the gutter, literally, and brought out of it by AA. All these people who had deep, deep eyes, deep souls, a serenity that I wanted. Um, I was so impressed by them, but I'm no alcoholic. I, I, at, at the times I met Wally, um, I couldn't drink more than a, a glass and a half of beer or a glass and a half of a wine glass and a half of wine before my body began to reject it. As much as I enjoyed the taste, my body just didn't enjoy getting much more than that one and a half glasses. Um, these days it's a half a glass. I, I don't, I can't even drink alcohol. Um, I, even though I like the taste of it. And I finally found a non-alcoholic beer, which, which I can drink. So that's good. It doesn't have sugar added to it. So it, it fits all kinds of categories. Um, but Wally is responsible for two of the major, the only major decisions I've ever made in my life. I used to believe every decision I made was, was like dividing a path, you know, uh, one fork or the other, and nothing is irreparable. But what I basically see is most of my decisions hovered around the same direction. But I made two decisions that uh, Wally is responsible for that really were life-changing. One of them was his suggestion that I be interested, that my interest in my wife was something that I should pursue. Um, we've been married almost 50 years now. He also persuaded her that I was worth pursuing in terms of a romantic, we were friends, but that there was something romantic between us or could be, and it turned out to be true. So, I mean, I owe him a lot for that. But the other is what he told me about Overeaters Anonymous. Um, I had been, I've been fat on my entire life. Um, there are pictures of me when I was five years old showing me to be pretty thin, but my memory is of being fat, of being the object of jokes, of making fun of myself before other people would make fun of me, um, gorging and gorging. And I'll, I'll tell my stories of eating a, a, in, a, in a while. Um, dieting, you know, uh, I, I joined a popular weight loss program. Uh, uh, I lost all my weight, then I gained it all back. Then I went back and lost all my weight, then gained it all back. I've been on dozens of diets. 
Um, I went to therapy. Uh, I came to the conclusion my real problem at the time was I was a workaholic. I was working in a workaholic uh, uh, group of people and I had to change my career. And I did, and I found a place that I could uh, have low rent and low overhead. And I was able to work a normal, reasonable kind of work life and have time for my young children. Because I was be I was resenting my young children for taking time away from my work. And I knew that was wrong. And that was causing me all kinds of heartache and, and stress, uh, besides the stress of the work I was doing. So I left all that. There was a sauna and a shower in the building that I, I was, uh, uh, my office is in. I was going to run to work and shower, maybe even sauna and run home. That was going to solve my eating problem. Everything was going to be great. Uh, in fact, I never uh, showered. Uh, I never ran to work, never showered in that building, never took a sauna. Uh, and my weight began to increase. So all my reasons that I thought were reasonable reasons in some way for, for me to eat a lot were gone. And I was still compulsively eating and I was still getting very fat. And my wife said to me, you've got to do something. I don't want to watch you die. I don't want the kids to watch you die. And, and you know, she knows my, my family history. My family history is of people dying from the effects of compulsive eating. Diabetes being the number one cause in my family of death. And, and it's, it doesn't cause death. It causes diseases and illnesses that cause death. Uh, it's, it's the hidden killer. Um, and I, you know, my whole family has it. Uh, and and uh, my whole family was a compulsive eating family. Um, I grew up in a, in a, in a Jewish Russian uh, household uh, with my uh, grandparents, my father's parents, my mother, my father. And uh, food was love and you had to show your love a lot. It was expected to eat, eat, eat. Um, and uh, to the point that my mother who worked with my father and grandfather, she couldn't cook the dinner, the supper meal. She'd cook a fourth meal and, uh, at nine o'clock at night because she had, to, she had to feed. It was just part of the culture. Um, so I was gaining even more weight after I had got rid of all the reasons that seemed reasonable to me for me to continue to eat. And Wally, my friend, came back. He was living out of town. He'd been living out of town for about 10 years. He came back to visit. I'm sure he spoke to my wife. And he said, um, I said, oh, I'm going to have to go back to this popular weight loss program. He said, well, why don't you try OA? And I said, what's that? He said, oh, is Anonymous. I know some of you have heard this, but those of you who haven't, it's a good story. Um, he said, oh, is Anonymous. I said, what's that? He said, it's, it's, a, it's for people with a food addiction, just like Alcoholics Anonymous. And I made this great joke. I said, Wally, never in my life have I ever had a business meeting scheduled for Thursday, eaten a donut on a Wednesday, and woke up in a hotel room on Friday, not knowing where I had been for the last two days. Because those were the stories that he had told and all of his friends had told. Those were the alcoholic stories. And he looked at me straight and he said, if you don't start taking your food as seriously as I take my alcohol, you're going to die. And I knew that was true, but his saying it gave me permission to treat my addiction as seriously as he treated his. And I believe he saved me to 100 to 150 pounds because I, I joined OA, I, I was certainly obese. I wasn't morbidly obese, but I was certainly obese. 
I'll show you some pictures um, um, in, in a moment. Um, but it wasn't yet killing me. I was 40 years old. My body was pretty, pretty tough. Um, and I didn't have diabetes and my vital signs were pretty good. And I could have rationalized it, you know, because compulsive eating, whether it's under eating or overeating, doesn't carry with it this dramatic sense that you can take your life with one more uh, moment of, of using. You know, if you are a drug addict and you take a drug, you could make a decision that could cost you your life crossing a street or an alcoholic, similarly. If you're a gambler, you can gamble well your entire fortune, your, your house in a moment of, of giving into this addiction. But unless you are grossly underweight or grossly overweight, one less bite or one more bite is not going to make a difference in your life. It's not this kind of dramatic um, addiction that you see in so many of the other addictions. But he gave me permission to treat it seriously. And so I went to my first meeting. So I, I wanted to pay tribute to Wally, passed on. I think it was about 60 years sober when he passed. Um, I wanted to uh, alert you or tell you about a web page. It's just one web page, one page called oabigbook.info. It is a website that uh, I maintain uh, that is dedicated to uh, working the steps the big book way. It has a number of uh, uh, um, uh, free downloads, many of them in PDF form. Uh, over here is a book that you can read as you can download it, get it printed. Do not buy it on Amazon because Amazon sells it for $800 because it's only used. I don't know why it sells it for $800. You can, you can download it and print it in any Staples or Kenko or something like that for 10, 15 bucks. Uh, it also contains forms for working the steps, which I will be, uh, some of which I will be discussing as we work it. Plus there are links to um, various podcasts of big book studies, similar to what I'm, I'm doing here for you today. Uh, this is the first, this is the cover of the first edition of Alcoholics Anonymous, probably the least anonymous kind of um, cover that you'd ever, you'd ever uh, think about. Not only, this is the, 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 the um, uh, paper cover, like the uh, fl uh, flap. Uh, underneath it, it was a bright red. And uh, this now is the fourth edition of the big book. This is what it looks like. And it's got a blue uh, cover. This is the big book thumper. These are pictures of me. And uh, I'll focus on this one. Uh, my wife uh, makes me say that uh, she never wore that dress again. Um, and uh, so you can see, this is way before I got bigger. This is not me at my worst. Um, it's just an example of what I used to look like. I, I was much bigger than I am. Um, yeah, I, this is probably the best right here, uh, to, just to show you. Oops, oh, there you are. We're getting there. My every move is planned. So this is, uh, that's me and this is me. I'm at a healthy body weight. I certainly wasn't then. And this wasn't as bad as it got. 
This was in my, oh, maybe my extra large uh, shirt, uh, you know, my extra large jacket size. I might've been about 40 in my waist. Uh, by the time I joined OA, I was a, I mean, I, I, I was a 2XL and I was uh, either a 42 or 44 split pants. In other words, I was wearing pants that were either 42 or 44 and I was splitting them. So that's, uh, that's as bad as I got. Um, I put fat on all over so that when I lost weight, I actually lost uh, half a shoe size as well. But uh, I, I was never one with a big belly. I just was fat all over. Um, and uh, yeah, well, these are just different pictures. Uh, you can sort of get a sense of what I look like. These are actually pictures of me at a very happy time visiting Stepping Stones uh, uh, in New Bedford Hills, uh, in Bedford Hills, New York, which I guess is relatively close to some of you. Um, and it's just a wonderful place. This was quite some time ago. This is me at the kitchen table that uh, Bill discusses and Bill's story that where he met Abby. This is Bill's writing desk uh, in, in a little separate little cabin that um, Lois's wife called Wit's End. And if you look hard, you can see that the cigarette burns in here. And then this is, uh, for those of you who might know about Al-Anon uh, or might be members of Al-Anon, uh, one of my friends in OA who was a member of Al-Anon as well, as well says Al-Anon is OA in waiting. I don't know if that's true. But here is Lois's desk. And what I love about it is her uh, three-tiered in and out uh, files. First things first, she'll get to that right away. Easy does it, she'll get to it. Live and let live, she's not going to get to it. <laughs> and I, I think that's just wonderful. I mean, we, we find these three slogans at the, um, after the, I think it's the family afterward, uh, at the end of that. And I had never thought of them before as being sort of tiered, but it's really true. First things first, easy does it, live and let live. You know, you, you get to it right away, you do it when you can, but you don't rush to do it and you do nothing. I think it's pretty, pretty smart. All right, so that's that. And I wanna start off with uh, also some 12, provocative statements. I will come back to them on Sunday. A provocative statement is a statement that is designed to make you partially angry, but partially think. And this is, I believe that I can show that the big book stands for each one of these propositions. First, I am a recovered compulsive eater and not a recovering one. And the very fact that this makes people feel uncomfortable is the reason why I, I say it and others who are big book thumpers say it. It sounds as if we're uh, full of pride. In fact, we're testifying to the miracle of recovery that is promised by the end of step nine. And that miracle is that as of today, Today only, a day at a time, I have had a personality change sufficient to overcome my addiction. And that personality change is such that I can be around what used to beckon to me and not want it. Not that I say I want it, I want it, but I can't have it, which is what my diets used to be like. But I can say, why would I want this? This is poison for me. We were recently with our grandsons, uh, 
joyous time because we're still in lockdown up here in Canada and, and especially in my part of the, the world, but we were primary caregivers so we could take care of them. And we were with our grandsons and we had ice cream in the freezer and I was dishing it out for them. And it actually smelled like pretty good ice cream, not, not you know, the crappy kind that you can sometimes get. And I thought, wow, they're gonna enjoy this. And I never thought for a moment that this would, I used to eat tubs of ice cream, tubs, not just the, the, the squares, but the tubs. That was one of my trigger foods. And the ability to be around ice cream or to be around popcorn or to be around potato chips or be around French fries or you know cookies or cakes or cheesecake, whatever, and not want it is the mark of recovery not recovering. Recovering almost sounds as if you're in the process of doing something. Recovered. As of today, a day at a time, I have what the big book calls a daily reprieve, a daily suspension of my death sentence today. And I'll keep it every day if I work the spiritual steps of this fellowship. This is a shock to many people uh, because you hear it in many 12-step uh, fellowships. Abstinence is not the most important thing in my life without exception. You hear that all the time. No, for me, the consciousness of the presence of God is, and you're going to hear from me, I don't believe in God. And yet I have a God in this, in this fellowship, not that I have a God anywhere else. I'll spend some time tomorrow talking about what it's like to be an atheist, an atheistical agnostic or agnostical atheist in this fellowship and how the big book deals with it because it deals with it brilliantly. Um, and, and, you know, just to, I, I don't want to uh, uh, leave you in suspense because this is the most important concept. Why is absence not the most important thing in my life? Because if I keep my relationship with my higher power complete, if I work hard at that, I am sane. And if I am sane, I don't want to indulge in that which used to attract me. And therefore, I'm abstinent by default. It's not as if I'm working on being abstinent. I'm working on my spiritual relationship with my higher power that keeps me sane as long as I'm sane. I'm abstinent. Three, another shocker, although a sponsor, if available, is very important for recovery, a sponsor is not necessary to recover. And, and what's, what's important about that statement is that the responsibility is not any sponsors to get you through the steps. It's your responsibility. And the instructions are relatively clear. They certainly are clear in the big book as well. They take a lot of explaining and adapting to OA, but they're relatively clear. The steps are relatively clear. You could do them themselves. And you can't go around saying, oh, I just can't find a sponsor, so I can't work the steps. Yes, you can. And the big book was written deliberately for people who wouldn't have sponsors available to them. Why? Because. It was written at a time when there were only three meetings, one in Akron, one in New York, and one in Cleveland. And so they knew that they, if they were going to share this fellowship, share this program with other people, they had to make sure that it was that there was a book that uh, contained these instructions. Four, you can recover in weeks. And you know, you hear so many people saying, oh, you got to wait X number of years or months to do step four. You got to be absent for so long. Well, the original big book people did not do that. They, they recovered in days, actually, many of them. Um, 
but you can certainly do it in weeks. And I think I, I know I'll be able to show you how quickly you can do it using the big book approach. Five, the tools of recovery are not an essential part of the OA program. This is proved by, you know, a, very, a whole bunch of very specific uh, statements. One is step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message to compulsive eaters. And tradition five says, every OA group has but one primary purpose to carry its message to the compulsive eaters who suffers. That message is the message of a spiritual awakening by working the 12 steps as a result of working the 12 steps. We are a step fellowship, not a tool fellowship. And the tools are very handy as a method of keeping busy and abstinent while you're working the steps, but they are not a substitute for the steps. The steps are what gets us the miracle of recovery. Six, you don't take steps one and two. Many of you will be familiar with the great AA speakers, Joe and Charlie. There were actually two Joes, uh, one Joe retired, Charlie got another Joe, but they were great. And I have been privileged to attend one of their workshops and I've listened to 10 of them maybe and read uh, a number of, uh, of, of um, transcripts of their stuff. And I've studied them. They've had a tremendous influence on my own recovery. Um, and they, they, they point this out that steps one and two are statements of the problem, step one, and the solution, step two. Powerlessness, step one, power, step two. Despair, step one, hope, step two. You don't take them, they're states you are in. You are in a state of utter hopelessness. You are in a state of some hope. And, it's, it's, and, and so take, taking them is nothing more than understanding where you stand. And we'll go through much of that tonight and tomorrow. Steps three, six, seven, and eight should not take a long time to get through. These were afterthoughts that Bill put in when he was writing 12, when he was writing the big book, there were originally six steps. And three, six, seven, and eight especially were steps that are just moments in time. I hope to be able to prove that to you. As a matter of fact, if you want an overview, the overview is this. You work out what your problem is you, and you work out a plan of eating that allows you to abstain from that which causes you uncontrollable cravings. You make a decision instead, you get some hope that you will find a spiritual uh, miracle that millions and millions of addicts have had with dozens and dozens of addictions. You make a decision, which is saying a prayer in step three. You make an inventory and you do that by starting off by doing it personally in, and the big book has a particular way of doing it. You then share it with another human being. You then, after sharing it with another human being, you then do six and seven and eight the same night or, the, or within the 24 hours of each other. And then you're on to eight and nine, which are the steps that actually give you recovery. You don't wait at step six or you don't wait at step seven. You don't wait at step six. Am I really, 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 really ready? You don't wait at step seven. Have my defects of character been removed? No, your defects of character are removed by making amends. 
Because when you make amends, you're saying, I don't want to be the person I have been. I, in order to change myself, I must clean up my past. And we'll see, by the way, that in OA, making amends is going to be really quite more complicated, a little bit more subtle and sophisticated than the amends discussed in the big book. Because the big book was written by gutter drunks, men, white Christian men, basically, who had been in business and lost it all, who had victimized a lot of people, done bad things to their families and to others. They had lied, cheated, and stolen. And they did not anticipate, because they're writing from their own experience, that people coming into many addiction programs, certainly in a way, have been sexually traumatized, have been victimized, no matter whether sexually or not, but you know, have suffered greatly in their lives at the expense of others, by, by not at the expense, but at the hands of others. And the amends that these people might have to make might be completely different from going up to someone saying, I'm sorry for how I acted. They could even be going to the police and saying this man or this person did this to me. And we'll have to talk about it. I will talk about that when we get to steps eight and nine uh, tomorrow. But anyway, six, seven, and eight shouldn't take a long time to get to. Eight, the eighth provocation, you don't make amends to yourself. Oh, how often we hear, oh, the first person I have to make amends to is myself. Not from the big book perspective. From the big book perspective, the person you make amends to is the person you've harmed and you do not, you make amends to yourself. Excuse me, I'm just wanna find the text markup so I can create highlights, okay. Uh, you want to make up for the harm you've done to others. By doing so, you will make the greatest amends to yourself, which will be that you will no longer want to indulge in that which you use, which you abstain from, you will become a spiritual different person. Nine, you can't carry the message until after you've completed step nine. 10, service is not slimming. I lived through the 90s. I, I have been abstinent for a little bit over 28 years. May 1st is my, 1993 is my absence birthday. That, that's pretty good. I have friends who've been absent much longer. They're gods to me. Um, and, but I, I joined a program 36 years ago. So I can't remember my math. It's about seven years of uh, 28 plus seven is, yeah, yeah, 36. No, yeah, 35, whenever it was. I've been in this program a long time. I went through seven years of relapse, recovery and relapse, recovery and relapse. And in those times, I kept hearing services slimming. And I used to volunteer for all kinds of things and do all kinds of things. And it never slimmed me down. And we'll talk about the difference between service and carrying the message when we get to uh, step 12 on Sunday. 11, I hope this isn't the case among many of you, but it probably is. There are some meetings that don't allow food to be discussed the tender little ears of people who will be triggered by, uh, by talking about food. And the big book is pretty clear that if we try to protect people from that which they're addicted to in meetings, they will not be protected in real life. Uh, I cannot talk about my story 
without talking about the foods that constitute my binge foods in order to help you figure out what constitute your binge foods and your eating behaviors. And 12 is probably the most contentious. Every person who wants to be a member of OA should know exactly what having a desire to stop eating compulsively means. That's the criterion for membership. If you have a desire to stop eating compulsively, you are a member of OA if you want to be a member of OA. But what does it mean to have a desire to stop eating compulsively? Does it mean I need a support group to give me some emotional support so maybe I'll keep to a diet? Does it mean I need a good diet and someone to phone in my food to every day, but who cares about the steps? I don't think it means that. I think it means that we are, well, we are a 12-step fellowship. We exist to carry a simple message. If you are an addict as we are addicts, then you, we will help you find a spiritual solution to your, fellow, to your addiction, which has helped millions of people. And if that's what you want, that's what eating compulsively means, and that's what we're here for. Although we provide support to anyone who has a desire to stop eating compulsively, we're not a support group. You know, uh, what's it called? Um, um, starts with a T. It's a, ha, it'll come to me. It'll, it comes to me 10 minutes late. That's, that's my age these days. It's, I remember the words 10 minutes late. Uh, you know, there are nonprofit support groups that uh, provide help for people who are, who just need help, support. There are for-profit support groups that do that too. The uh, Way and Pay uh, program that I went to three times provided support for me as I followed their diet. It was a good diet and I made friends there and we met once a week and it was good. It didn't help me because I'm an addict, but it helped some people who weren't addicts, who just ate too much. So that's the, the, 12th, uh, the 12th provocation. All right, I wanna start studying the book. So this is the fourth edition, the cover, how many thousands of women and men and women have recovered, you know, it's not are recovering, but have recovered. And the original uh, one, uh, first edition uh, used to say, it, it said the story of how 100 men and women have recovered from alcoholism. Um, and again, the longest sobriety that any of them had at that time it was printed, it was first published in April of 1939, was Bill, who was December 1934. So you can do the math, five years, no, four, four and a half years of sobriety. And yet they said we have recovered. Why? Because they had faith in their higher power. They had a spiritual awakening. They believed that this program would work for them. Okay, so this is the fourth edition of the book. Uh, uh, those of you who have only the third edition will not see this one, but this is the preface, uh, which is the same. And, and it's been like this since um, the second edition. This book has become the basic text for our society. And as Joe and Charlie point out, it is a textbook. And a textbook contains information from people who have expertise designed to educate people who don't. And you read a textbook and you study it and you start at the first page 
and you go on until you reach the end in order because it's designed to teach you. And as Joan Charlie point out, you don't start at chapter five. If you're studying an algebra textbook, you start at chapter one. And uh, so many of us turn to how it works, chapter five in the big book, uh, because we just want, that's where the 12 steps are. But in fact, the big book spends a lot of time explaining steps one and two and laying the background for steps, step three and four. The forward to the first addiction, uh, addition addiction. We, Al Valkovs Anonymous, are more than 100 men and women who have recovered, hey, not are recovering, oops, from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. So the purpose of this book is to show how we have recovered, do what we do, and you'll have what we have. Forward to the third edition. This, is, this was a mind-boggling thing for me. The 12 steps that summarize the program. They summarize the program. They are the ingredients and the big book is the recipe. And this became so clear to me when I began to study the big book and realized that although step four discusses the inventory, the big book discusses steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine as being the inventory. And although step 10 describes the idea of when we were wrong, promptly admitted it, the discussion of step 10 in the big book really describes doing steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine again in the context of recovery. And these, these are, you know, so they, they summarize the program. Oh, and, you know, step five says, uh, to God, to ourselves, another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. And step six says, we're entirely ready to have God remove our shortcomings. And step seven says, humbly asked him to, uh, no, what, uh, I keep forgetting what it is. Humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. That's step seven. Step six is, we're entirely are uh, uh, ready to have God remove our defects of character, right? And so we have wrongs, defects of character, and shortcomings, and you try and parse that. Why did Bill change it? What does that mean? Um, and the answer is he only used three words because he was told that you never use the same words in succeeding sentences. If you read the big book, you'll find that the words defects of character uh, are used. The phrase defects of character are used consistently for steps five, six, and seven. All right, this is Dr. William Silkworth, considered to be a saint, the, the little man who loved drunks. He's responsible for one of the most important parts of the big book, the doctor's opinion, which precedes page one. And this part is where Dr. Silkworth explained our addiction, the problem of addiction, in a way that makes sense to the addict. It may or may not make sense to psychiatrists or psychologists or therapists. It may or may not make sense to medical doctors or biologists or geneticists. But what he says makes sense to us. And anytime I describe what he says, people who have this problem say, yeah, that, that's me. So, he wrote the doctor's opinion, and that's found on page 
uh, 25XXVII of the, um, of the fourth edition, and it's found on page um, XX, um, I have to find it. it you, you subtract two, XXIV of the, of the uh, third and second edition. And he actually writes two letters. The first letter is a letter of reference. The second letter is a letter in which he provides the theory that makes so much sense to us. And in between is, is some commentary. So what's in the small type is his opinion. And basically his first letter is a letter of reference. And he ends up with saying, you may rely on absolutely on anything they say about themselves, which is a, to be a hell of a letter of reference, but that's because he knew that they were connected to the higher power and they would not lie. They could not lie because if they lied, they would go back to their drinking. And then there's there's uh, some writing in, in um, large print, which uh, Bill wrote, or uh, the writers of the big book wrote. And this is where he begins, the, the, the theory begins. This longer letter, they say, confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe. People say there are no musts in this program. There are, in the big book, there are at least 60 musts in which you must do this. And what must we believe? That the body of the alcoholic was at quite as abnormal as his mind. They go on, they say, it did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality, or were outright mental defectives. These things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of us. But we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well in our belief. Any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. And this is something that I rejected for seven years in this fellowship. I wanted to believe what every diet I had ever been on and what my first sponsor told me. And my problem was simply volume. I just ate too much. And that if I just restricted the volume, I could eat anything I wanted. And all the diets said, sure, leave out the extra calorie stuff because that just wastes calories. But once you lose your weight, and my, my weigh and pay uh, diet that I went on said, once you reach goal weight, you can have back. I remember clearly to this day, it was back in the late 70s, uh, early uh, mid 70s. Um, half a donut, one half scoop of ice cream. In other words, a scoop of ice cream. And they, they used to show you'd use a, a credit card to, to shave it off. So it was exactly a half a scoop of ice cream or two cookies. And every time I had my half a donut or my two cookies or my ice cream week after week, and they weighed me every week and I kept my goal weight. And as soon as I realized that I was keeping my goal weight, I stopped shaving that scoop of ice cream. It became, over a period of time, a, a whole ball of ice cream. The cookies were mixed in at some time with the ice cream. The half a donut became a full donut until I was eating out of the tub, again, of ice cream again. And if that happened every time. It happened to me in OA for seven years because I wanted to believe that my problem was 
compulsive eating and that the only solution I needed was not to eat compulsively. And that once I reached step nine and had this wonderful miracle of recovery, I just had to, I would just eat moderately. Well, certainly I ate radishes moderately, um, but I did not eat ice cream moderately. And uh, it took me seven years in this fellowship before I accepted this notion of this physical factor. Uh, the doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. I was studying this with a friend of mine who had joined OA. He asked me to sponsor him. Um, I'll talk on Sunday about how I began to recover again after seven years of recovery, of relapse. Um, uh, because it, it, it's an important story in my life, and it has to do with step 12. Um, but he'd asked me to sponsor him. I found out he had been sober for 15 years in AA, and I had been semi-abstinent in OA for a couple of months um, after my seven years of relapse. And he started, he said he got, I said, how did you get sober? He said, I studied the big book. And so I studied the big book with him. And we got to this section, we were studying the doctor's opinion. He talked, I talked about an allergy. I'm not allergic to food. I love food. I don't get sick when I eat it. I don't get diarrhea. I don't get uh, hives, rashes. I certainly don't get anaphylactic shock when I, when I eat uh, anything. I could eat tons of peanuts, tons of shrimp. I have no allergy. And, and this guy who was a grade nine uh, dropout and I was, have an MA in English and I had a law degree and the two greatest dictionaries in the English language in my office, because I love dictionaries. And I knew what words meant. He said, you don't know what the word allergy meant in 1939. Look it up. And I did. And I found out that the word allergy in 1939 meant simply a detrimental reaction to a substance. What that detrimental reaction might be was open. It could be what the doctor says it is, cravings, uncontrollable cravings. In other words, wanting more. And we'll see the doctor talk about that. So they say as layman, our opinion as to its soundness may of course be middle, little, but as ex-problem drinkers, we can say his explanation makes good sense. It explains many things which we cannot otherwise account. Now at the bottom of this page, more often than not, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he's approached. At the bottom of the next page, now we've got the doctor writing in the smaller type. And he says at the bottom of the next page, of course an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor. These are the main mentions of sobriety in the big book. Sobriety is taken for granted you know, and, and it's not taken for granted in, in maybe in other 12-step fellowships, even our own OA 12 and 12 says, of course, it's ideal we are absent when we take step four. I think the big book would say you must be absent before you take step four. Otherwise, how can you be honest enough to do a searching and fearless moral inventory? Um, I feel strongly about this on a personal level because I had a friend in OA who had been in it, who was an AA, NA, and OA. And he was also a student of Joe and Charlie. He knew the big book, Cold, knew it better than I did. And he asked me to sponsor him. I was very flattered. I, I said, you don't need me to sponsor you. Uh, he said, no, no I, I need some help. So, would you? so I met with him. I said, okay, let's get a plan of eating for you. Let's get you abstinent. 
He said, I can't get abstinent. I'm hoping as I work the steps, I would get abstinent. I said, what? He says, yeah, I, I think if I work the steps, gradually I'll get abstinent. I said, you're an AA. If someone came up to you in AA and asked you to sponsor them and said, you know what? I think I'll continue to drink and hope that the steps will get me sober. What would you say? Well, I'm not going to repeat the exact words he said, but they were the equivalent of go away. A uh, little stronger than that, but the, the equivalent of go away. And I said, what do you want me to do? And he pleaded with me to help him. So I did. I said, I don't know if it's going to work. He did a step four and five. He said it was great. He did an eight and nine. He said he'd never done anything better. He never got abstinent. Never. Three or four years later, he died by suicide. He had breached his abstinence in OA, his cleanliness in NA, and his sobriety in AA. And for me, you know what? I don't, I don't care about hurting people's feelings. As far as I'm concerned, you got to be abstinent. How else can you be honest? All right. So let's just talk about the doctor's opinion here. He's going to be describing the allergy. He says, the action of alcohol on chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. What's a manifestation? It's a symptom. It's, it's how it shows itself. And what is this manifestation? He calls it the phenomenon of craving. Now, a phenomenon, is it comes from the Greek, the plural is phenomena. Phenomenon is an occurrence for which there is no explanation. In other words, the doctor didn't know how it happened, why it happened. And to this day, no one can provide. There are all kinds of good guesses as to why it happens. But there is no medically acceptable definition of this kind of consequence of craving. No idea how it happens, no idea what it is. And that makes it difficult for us, especially because OA is an umbrella fellowship. We're not Sugarholics Anonymous, Chocoholics Anonymous, Fataholics Anonymous, um, Flourholics Anonymous. We are Overeaters Anonymous. Frankly, we're under and Overeaters Anonymous. We're compulsive eaters. Um, and each one of us, the group conscience of OA, as expressed in this literature, uh, the, the pamphlet Dignity of Choice that's just recently been supplanted by a pamphlet which repeats the same thing called A, a New Plan of Eating, uh, says every person has to have a plan of eating that fits them. And anyone who tries to impose a plan of eating on another person is acting contrary to the group conscience because they may be imposing a plan on someone else that allows those other people to continue to eat or indulge in behaviors or foods that cause them cravings. And they may be restricting them from eating things that don't cause them those cravings. In this room, there are people who can eat what I cannot eat. And I can eat things that other people can't eat. And we have to be individual. And I, I'm gonna talk about that's gonna be, we're gonna sort of open the floor up and we'll talk a bit more about that as we go, as we go on. But the doctor is talking about this phenomenon of crazy, couldn't, craving. He couldn't explain it, but he just saw it. It is this sense, and he goes on and he, he describes what it is, but he says, these allergic types can never safely use in alcohol in any form at all. It doesn't occur in ordinary people. Look at me and my example with alcohol. I love the taste of good wine. I love the taste of good beer. And I have probably a pretty good taste bud set. I know what a good wine is. And I was once offered a $100 bottle of wine. 
and I had a taste of it. Ambrosia. I've never, I mean, I used, I mean, I knew the difference between 10 and $20 bottles of wine. I didn't know there's a difference between 20 and $90 bottle of wine that was even more amazing. And I remember filling the glass up this high. The wine glass was almost full. I wanted to make sure I had as much of that taste in me as possible. And I drank a third of it. And my body said, no more. You can't, you can't have any more of that. It makes you uncomfortable. The taste is great, but the effect of the alcohol on you is not enjoyable and the body doesn't like it. My wife is like that. My wife has always ordered deep and dark chocolate kinds of, she loves dark chocolate. And we've gone out to eat and they bring the dessert tray and she picks the richest and deepest uh, and, and, and uh, darkest kind of cake. And I've seen her and she's bitten into her, oh, this is good. Oh, this is great. And she eats half of it and she puts her fork down and she says, I'll have the rest tomorrow. Now, you can imagine what my reaction was in the old days. Um, but now I, I'm happy for her that she enjoys it. I'm not tempted to eat it. I, I mean, it's just a wonderful miracle. But, it, but even before I joined OA, my wife was like that. And, and I remember we, uh, once we went uh, to dinner at her, at her, uh, her parents and um, old mums made spring potatoes, which are the little potatoes that are roasted at the bottom of a, of a roasting pan in, with the roast. And the way her mother cooked the British style cooking, all the good stuff was at the bottom of the pan. And the, and the piece of meat was British style cooking was just a gray piece of flab. Uh, but anyway, I digress. Um, and, um, and she started to gobble these potatoes up. She cut them in half and eat and eat. I'd never seen her. She hated my cooking. It was too spicy. It was too rich, whatever. But she loved these spring potatoes, you know, crispy on the outside, creamy on the inside, half, half, half going into her. I'd never seen her eat so much. Finally, her plate was empty except for half a potato. She cut that in half. She ate the quarter and she put her fork down. And I'm looking at this little teeny quarter of a potato and gently and nicely and politely, I said, aren't you gonna eat that? Oh, I'm full, she said. And I said, but you love it. And she said, yeah, but I'm full. And I said, why aren't you eating it? I remember yelling at her, why aren't you eating it? I couldn't stand the thought that she wouldn't eat all that she wanted. And yet I'm like that with alcohol. And she's like that with food. So this whole concept of allergic types, this phenomenon, unexplained phenomenon of craving um, is, is important. He goes on, he says, men and women drink essentially because they, they like the effect produced by alcohol. His sensation is so elusive, it runs away from them, that while they admit it is injurious, while they admit it harms them, they cannot after time differentiate the true from the false. Because my wife did not enjoy food as much as I did. When we were going out, I had grave doubts as to her sanity and her fitness for marrying me. Grave doubts. She seemed abnormal to me, not interested in food. Whereas it was a very major issue in my life. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Let's just parse that for a minute. He's describing 
the state of sobriety and how you feel without gap having what you're addicted to. You are restless, irritable, and discontented. And then when you have some of it, when it even reaches your mouth, I remember the first feeling of ice cream on my, on my uh, taste buds and in my mouth, the creaminess, the richness, or the first bite of a, of a French fry or, or a, a cake or something. I'm home. I remember that moment, I'm home. For some of you, it may be restrictions. It may be not eating. The act of absolutely not eating, even though it's available, might be that sense of, I'm in my comfort zone. I'm uncomfortable when I'm not doing that. Or people who uh, overeat and then vomit. It may be that the vomiting, although it may not be enjoyable, that's their sense of ease and comfort. That's where they are. That's where they feel they're at home. So the doctor talks about this phenomenon of craving and he says, I don't believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. This is at the bottom of page uh, 29 in Roman numerals XXIX or XXVII 27 in, uh, in the third and second edition. And he describes the, the typical alcoholic with the, uh, everything is at stake if they don't drink and they drink and they, they succumb. And he says, these men were not drinking to escape they were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. And then he goes into the classification of alcoholics and, and he's really fighting a trend because people were writing, trying to explain the mental state. They considered alcoholism to be a mental problem, a weakness. They never thought of it as being a physical issue as well. Dr. Silkworth had this theory, which was never accepted by the medical profession and was almost laughed at when he first published it in 1934. I laughed at, but it wasn't taken seriously and no one picked up on it. This theory that there's something different about these bodies. He had treated thousands and thousands and thousands of drunks. And he had come to the conclusion that they're different. And the only thing that makes them different is that once they start, they can't stop. That their body takes over. And, and he talks about all these different types. He talks about psychopaths. He talks about um, he's unwilling, he's in denial. They believe that being entirely free, you're fine. Uh, there's the manic depressive type. Uh, there's a normal type. And he says all these and many others have one symptom in common, only one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, this, remember, phenomenon is an unexplained occurrence. Doesn't know why. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation, the outward showing of an allergy, which different, and what is an allergy? A detrimental reaction, uh, it, it, which differentiates these people, set them apart. It has never been by any treatment with which we are familiar, permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. This specific paragraph has a very important part of OA history. Two years into the founding of OA, 1962, so it's two years, there were a few groups of OA, mostly within California. Roseanne S., our founder, was the secretary, the person who wrote, sort of the leader of these groups, the founder of OA. And she attended an open AA meeting at which they discussed the, the doctor's opinion and read this paragraph. Up until this time, 
there were a number of diets that were being used in OA. Some of them actually belonged to the way and pay plan that I had been part of, others deriving from other diets that went around and people were following them. And she realized after she heard this, the only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence was that OA was missing sobriety. There's no concept of sobriety in OA. She said, this is the perfect word, abstinence. We have to become abstinent. And she wrote a letter to all the groups, created all kinds of controversy. You can read it all in her wonderful book, uh, Beyond Our Wildest Dreams, available from OA, which is the history of OA and what abstinence really means and all that. But this concept of abstinence is abstaining from compulsive eating uh, is one that has stuck with us since 1962. What it means it's now been defined by the World Service Business Conference as abstaining from compulsive foods and food behaviors and working towards or maintaining a healthy body weight. So you are not abstinent if you are not abstaining from compulsive foods and compulsive, and compulsive food behaviors and working towards or maintaining a healthy body weight. And now I wanna talk about developing a plan of eating to allow us to be abstinent. And, uh, and then maybe I'll, I'll suggest we open it up a bit uh, to some discussion. Uh, uh, but I, I just wanna give you an overview before I do that. You will find in step one in, on pages, I think it's three and four of our OA 12 and 12, the same thing in our 12 and 12, like compulsive overeaters, normal eaters will sometimes find pleasure and escape from life's problems and excess food. Compulsive overeaters often have an abnormal reaction when we overindulge. We can't quit. A normal eater gets full and loses interest in food, we compulsive overeaters crave more. Some of us even have a strange reaction to particular foods. We feel compelled to eat another serving after we finish the first and then another and another. Not all compulsive eaters can identify particular foods which give us this trouble, but many of us can. What all of us have in common is that our bodies and minds seem to send us signals about food which are quite different from those a normal eater receives. No matter how long we abstain from eating compulsively, no matter how adept we become at facing life's problems, we will always have these abnormal tendencies. Clearly, if we are to live free of the bondage of compulsive eating, we must abstain from all foods and eating behaviors which cause us problems. If we don't ever overeat, we won't trigger the reaction that makes us crave more, okay? So ROA 12 and 12 follows the big book in this respect. And it is essential for us to accept there are some behaviors and or some foods and or some ingredients which cause us these cravings. We are, I mean, we are on the spectrum. We're, we span the spectrum. You know, there's Gamblers Anonymous, there's Sex Addicts Anonymous, and there are Debtors Anonymous, others which are behavior 12-step fellowships. And what you do is you abstain from those behaviors which have become addictive. And then there are single substance fellowships like Alcoholics Anonymous or multi-substance fellowships like Narcotics Anonymous, single substance crystal meth anonymous, cocaine anonymous, nicotine anonymous. There's even some food uh, uh, addict uh, uh, fellowships which either treat food addiction as an eating behavior or treat food addiction as 
addiction to specific kinds of foods, which they all agree on. We are the umbrella and we accept people who, accept, who, who have a compulsive eating problem, under eating, overeating, whatever. So some of us have just behaviors. It might just be vomiting. It might just be exercising to excess. It might be volume, just a whole bunch of volume issues is the need to fill yourself to the top of your head. Or it might be one specific food. It might be just fast foods. It might be just cheeseburgers, who knows? Uh, it might be a, a, a substance, might be flour, might be sugar, might be fat, might be combinations of uh, substances, fat and sugar, fat and salt, that's my issue. Um, might be in addition to behaviors and ingredients, might be foods that feel like other kinds of foods, uh, but aren't those foods. You can make a fake ice cream that tastes just like ice cream by using frozen blueberries and Greek yogurt, skim milk Greek yogurt, and put them in a blender. It has the creaminess of ice cream. I found myself addicted to it because it has the creaminess of ice cream, the sweetness and creaminess of ice cream, even though it's absolutely healthy. And I can eat both of those two ingredients without a problem. Well, I don't now because I'm vegan, but uh, I could have. The problem is, as the doctor has described it, that our bodies react differently from normal people. We have to accept the reality of that and abstain from that which causes this abnormal reaction. Then we discover, and we'll discuss this a little later on today and tomorrow, our real problem is not that. Because that's a physical problem. We accept most physical problems. I need glasses to see the computer with. I don't pretend, I'm not gonna throw these glasses off and say, boy, it's been a long time since I've worn these glasses. I no longer need them. You, you, know, uh, you know, people who have back problems, people who have uh, lost mobility, they don't suddenly say, I'm gonna throw away my wheelchair. I'm no longer, you know, and I'm, I'm, you know, they don't say that, they accept their disability. Well, I have a disability. Once I start certain things, I can't stop. Not every time, but much of the time. As a matter of fact, every time when I look at it in slow motion, camera speed it up. Because it's just like breathing. I can hold my breath for a certain length of time. Not that long, but the world's record may be five minutes, six minutes, I don't know what the world's record is. I can stop my eyes from blinking for a certain amount of time, maybe even 30 seconds. But at a certain point, my body says, you're having more. So yeah, there have been time when I've been away from these foods, when I've had some and then my, I may have wanted them, but I've been able to stay away from them. But as I got worse and worse, those times were fewer and fewer. In the same way that alcoholics might start off having yearly binges and then have monthly binges and then have weekend binges and then end up having binges all the time. Who knows where it's going to end? But if you've ever experienced the sense of not being able to stop, you know, my, my eating behavior, my eating history is that my hand is bringing the food to my mouth. And as I joke, often it should have been a spoon or a fork, but it's the hand bringing it. I'm just scooping it up. And, and my head is saying, you've got to stop. You've gained too much weight. You're going to get diabetes. You're going to die. 
and it just keeps coming. This will be the last one. This will be the last one. No, this next one will be, this next one will be, and it never is the last one. And I've, I've told many other stories, which I'm not going to tell today because I don't want to run out of time. But, but these are stories in which I did disgusting things and continued, in which I witnessed absolutely disgusting things and still ate because the food was there and it had my binge foods in it. And I also was stuffed to the gills and I ate and ate to the point of, of disgusting kind of eating with stuff dripping from my mouth and my mouth filled with this food and I couldn't stop eating it. I mean, these are things that are just awful. And they didn't happen all the time to me. They would have if I'd been 150 pounds more, I'm sure they would have happened more often. Because I think what would have happened is my wife, who's not in a neighbor, would have said, go live somewhere else. I can't stand to see you die. You know, let's not forget that the, that the death of a compulsive eater, undereater or overeater, is a death by a thousand cuts. It's not going to be, generally speaking, it won't be an easy, painless death. It's going to be preceded by bouts and bouts of incapacities and pains, joints uh, uh, hurting, uh, loss of bone structure, um, loss of eyesight, um, gangrene, heart strokes, um, uh, pains, infections, some cancers. <coughs> this is the kind of life where we become more and more dependent upon other people in order to be able to live. And we become less and less part of society. This is a life, a death within life, and then we die. Whereas other dramatic addictions can die very quickly. We're not going to, and I remember even knowing that and thinking to myself, yes, I am dying, but my wife will never blame herself for my suicide. You know, if I did it precipitously, if I did it in any violent way, or I did it in a way with a, with a really horrible addiction, she would blame herself. But she wouldn't blame herself for this. And I remember thinking that way, that this was a way to get rid of myself pretty easily. Although it is a horrible, horrible way to die. You know, there's a passage in the big book that talks about the alcoholic in his cups. It's a very pathetic uh, spectacle. How pathetic is it to weigh 50 pounds? How pathetic is it to weigh 550 pounds? How pathetic is it to see people? I mean, I watch people, I mean, I know this. I, I, I remember I, I watch really obese people and when they think people are, no, when they're just by themselves and they've got maybe their cane and they're walking and you just sort of see the whole heaviness of their lives, you know, and they're just, so their faces are just down like that. And then they think that someone's looking at them and suddenly that they're, they sort of put on a smile and they pretend that everything's okay. I remember doing that. And I see that in them. And the same with the, uh, you know, the, the under eater, the, the, the nervousness and the, and the inability to relate to people and the sadness of looking at these skeletal uh, people and knowing that somehow their pictures of themselves are very different. To, to the reality of what they are and how sad that they're living in this, in this world in which they must be that thin. Um, I, I don't pretend to know that much about anorexia purely, 
bulimia I know a lot about because they're exactly the same as I am. They're compulsive overeaters, except they hide it better. Uh, and, and that eating behavior that they, that they uh, engage in that, that gets rid of uh, their, their the evidence of their compulsive eating is just, is just something else. Um, but whatever it is, we die by a thousand cuts. So we know that it's awful. We know that it's a horrible addiction. And yet we continue to engage in it. And this sense of ease and comfort that we get when we, when we indulge in that which we know causes our problem is at the heart of the first part of our problem. Once we stop, once we start, we cannot stop. But that's not our real problem because that's just a physical, the equivalent of a physical disability. It may not be physical, it may be deeply psychological. Who cares? It is so deep that we can't get rid of it ourselves. It is, you know, I was frightened by a dog, I'm sure, when I was two years old because I have an abnormal reaction when a little dog yaps at me. And I'm not afraid of dogs. But if I hear a, a yap, suddenly I get scared. And we all have, many of us have these reflexive kind of actions that we can't get rid of. Um, and it may be that's all it is. Maybe it's so deep seated. My mother told me that when she was uh, nursing me that the wisdom of the day was not to feed more than every four hours. Even if the kid cries, only four hours. Let the kid cry for two hours. And she talked about how painful it was for her to hear me cry because I wanted nursing more. Who knows, maybe that caused me such tremendous psychological damage that I need to overeat. I don't care. I know that it's the same as, the, as, as a physical craving, that I have no control over it. And as long as I have no control over it, it's the same as blinking. It's the same as breathing. It's the same as a heartbeat. The body takes over. And the beauty of that, of understanding that, is this. There should be no guilt. I'm different. I have a disability. Second, I clearly must abstain from that which causes me these abnormal cravings. Third, it gives me a hint on how to figure out what to abstain from. And fourth, because many of us are people pleasers, it gives me the perfect excuse to say I can't have any. No thanks, I'm allergic to it. Who's gonna ask you, oh, what happens? But if they do ask you, you have three choices. You can say, well, I belong to this fellowship called Overeaters Anonymous. And it's for people who once they start, they can't stop eating foods like this. So if you know anyone who, and I've reached a healthy body weight and I no longer want to indulge in these things. If you know anyone who could use what I have, please let me know. I'll be happy to talk to them anytime, anywhere. That's what I do. But the other reactions may be, you may say, oh, what happens if you eat this stuff? I break out in fat. And the other one, my bum begins to swell. I don't know, you could say that one too. So just as a preview, the other real problem is that we have a mind that continues to believe or persuade itself that this time it'll be different. That we can in fact indulge. Our real problem is that we can't stop from starting. Not that we can't uh, stop once we started, we can't live in sobriety because our mind will give us an excuse. And the big book goes into great detail about this, 
I'll probably be discussing this either later this afternoon, this evening, or tomorrow morning in great detail to try and show you that the reasons can be deep, deep emotional trauma, and the reasons can be absolutely absurd, like it. They made it for you. Or you'll never be able to have this again. You're in a particular city. Or you've been good for five minutes. You didn't eat the bun, so you can eat the ice cream. You know, the gamut of reasons that we give no longer matters. When you look at the abstract result, it is the mind will find some reason that persuades you at that moment and does a little click and oh, okay. You know, and, and that's what's important to understand because that's our real problem. And that's what the steps allow us to recover from. All that the steps end up doing is to say, is have us be sane and to know that this food that no, there is no good reason for indulging in this. The result will always be worse and not better. And we know that. And therefore it may be, it's poison for me, but it's not poison for you. It's the equivalent of if I ate peanuts or shrimp and died from it, I would not eat peanuts or shrimp, right? I mean, that's how you accept your disability. Other people can eat it, I can't. Other people can eat ice cream, I can't. That's sanity is something that was never mine until I worked the 12 steps of OA while abstaining from that which I had to abstain from. And the, the big, our OA 12 and 12 talks about this mental obsession. And that's what the big book talks about. So I wanna talk about um, the concept of a plan of eating. And then I wanna open it up, it's about seven, 50, yeah. I'll open up for 15, minutes if anyone wants to uh, volunteer for a cross-examination on their food uh, to show how, how you might want to develop a plan of eating yourself. Let me start off by saying that a plan of eating is that by which we end up abstaining from those things that cause us cravings. That's evident from the definition of the, uh, the, the, the World Service Business Conference, the group conscience of OA, has adopted of, of abstinence. It's obvious from the reading in the OA 12 and 12, and it's also obvious from the big book, which is OA literature as well. If a plan of eating is a method by which we become abstinent, then we have to distinguish the plan of eating from a diet. A diet is what you choose to work within. I follow a vegan diet for reasons that have nothing to do with OA. I choose to eat no animal product, not to eat animal products of any kind. Um, but I was absent when I was a carnivore, when I ate meats and fish and all that. And I gradually moved from being a carnivore to a pescatarian, which meant I ate fish and seafood and uh, to a ovo-lacto, vegetarian, which meant I had uh, dairy products and eggs, to being an ovo vegetarian, which meant I had only eggs, to being a vegan. That's my choice. Um, it made it easier for me to be abstinent because a whole bunch of foods that I used to be addicted to were animal products. But I started off being a carnivore and, and getting abstinent. And the first thing I did, and I invite you if you want to develop plant eating to do, is make a list of foods that you have compulsively eaten. 
And I did that. I looked over the foods that I had eaten like a pig. You may have none. You may be a restrictor. You may be someone who doesn't eat, who undereats. But we'll get to you in a, in a moment as well. But many people who are, have been anorexic have also been bulimic or have been overeaters. And those who have will also have a list of things that they have overeaten. Some of you may say, I overeat anything. I challenge them. It may, that may be true, absolutely true, but I do challenge them. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But I made a list and my list focused on a combination of things. On the one side were a whole bunch of sweet things highlighted by my three biggest binge foods, which was shortbread, cheesecake, and ice cream. Those are my three favorite desserts. Um, and I have, I have eaten whole of all of them. I used to uh, eat you know, ice cream out of a carton on the other end, so no one would discover how much I had eaten. I don't know if anyone's ever done that. Um, I mean, how, how insane, but people didn't eat much ice cream in, in my house except me, so they would never know. Oh, there's still some left until their spoon would go all the way through the carton. Um, that's on the one side. And on the other side, I have eaten tons and tons of buttered popcorn, or I used to joke, I used to put popcorn on my butter, um, deep fried foods, foods deeply fried in butter. Um, I just made a dish for my uh, our grandsons that they love. It's basically something fried in butter. It doesn't matter what it is. I, it happens to be uh, uh, matzah, Jewish, uh, I wouldn't even call it that, it's a Jewish cracker that's broken up and mixed with eggs. And then the real ingredient is the butter you fry it in. They love it. Of course they love it. How can you not love it? So things like that, buttered popcorn, potato chips, uh, French fries, uh, deep fried uh, chicken, you know, deep fried anything, uh, battered, especially battered. And when I looked at them, I realized that for me, it was a combination of high fat products mixed with sugar or mixed with salt. That those two things were tremendous problems for me. Doesn't mean it's problems for everyone, but for me, there were problems. They were problems. And I immediately set out a plan of eating which eliminated high fats. And uh, it doesn't matter how I did that. You can ask me, we'll have a question answer period but I eliminated high fats and uh, I eliminated all, all desserts because virtually all desserts are a combination of fat and sugar. And I also eliminated all deep fried foods. I, I cut off all the uh, uh, visible fats from meats and, and fish, you know, no skin of, of chicken or, you know, all the gristle and the, the fats on steaks and things of that sort. I eliminated all that. And I also eliminated high fat dairy products. For so I knew that high fat dairy products, butter, cheese, um, sour cream, uh, high fat yogurt, high fat milk, even 3% milk were triggers for me. For me, not for everyone, but for me. And so I eliminated those. I could have oil. I could even saute in oil. It would make a difference to me. But if I sauteed things in butter, it would make a huge difference to me. That was me. So I eliminated those things. After three months of working the steps, I had a spiritual awakening and I no longer wanted those things. It was the most amazing thing. I could watch other people eat them and I had this miracle of recovery. I hadn't lost any weights, any weight at all. 
And this guy I'd been working with who had been 15 years sober in AA had lost all kinds of weight by simply cutting out his binge food, which was fast foods. He just didn't eat, he didn't eat fast foods, that's all. It's the only difference he made in his diet, he lost tons of weight. So I was a little jealous, I must admit. But I figured out it must be something else, it must be volume. And I began, and then when I came to this section of the OA 12 and 12, it talked about eliminating eating behaviors, which is the precursor of our definition of abstinence, compulsive food and eating behaviors. I began to realize I had two eating behaviors, which caused me volume issues. I was eating foods that didn't necessarily cause me cravings in and of themselves, but I was eating too much of those foods. Why? There were two basic reasons. The first was that I, as I told you, I grew up in a family which you had to eat everything. So I was eating until I was uh, uh, figuratively full up to the top of my head, you know, or at least up to the top of my throat. I was just stuffing and stuffing it in. And some of you may identify that as, a, as an emotional eating behavior, that they, it, it stuffs in the pain, it relieves you of the pain. I, I wouldn't say that for me, but for some of you, that may be very, very true. But it's a behavior. Doesn't matter what it is, better if it's your binge food, but it doesn't have to be your binge food. And for me, I'd eliminated my binge foods, but I was still eating too much. So that was one, just eating. The other was I was following this weigh and pay plan that said, keep your mouth busy, chew gum, eat celery, eat carrots, uh, keep your mouth busy all the time so you won't eat the high calorie foods. Well, what happened was it was getting my mouth going to the point, my saliva going, that I wanted to eat, that my mouth, my body wanted to eat more at my mealtime when I was eating foods that had some caloric value to them. So I went back to what I had started on in a way, which is three meals a day, nothing in between. It took me two weeks to stop chewing on ice cubes and to chewing on, on, on pencils because I had this chewing mechanism going on that meant I had to keep chewing. And that chewing was causing me to eat greater volume. Other people have identified eating behaviors like restricting, eating nothing or eating almost nothing, vomiting, exercising to excess, um, uh, or eating while watching television, eating while reading, um, eating uh, during emotional times, eating not at the table, but somewhere else. I mean, different people have different eating behaviors, but most of them eating behaviors are set aside from food issues. So eating behaviors are volume issues, either too much or too little, and they have to be abstained from if you have them. Some of you don't. And then there are food issues. So when I, so I eliminated those two and I, I, I began to reach a healthy body weight. I don't measure my foods. I measure them by how full I begin to feel. When I begin to feel full, I stop. Not when I'm full up to here, but when I begin to be feel full around my belly button. And that's been working for me for 28 years. As I get older, my metabolism changes, my physical activities change. I may have to weigh and measure, I don't know. Um, I know sometimes I have to be more mindful and I have to stop reading while eating in order to be sure that I really am feeling that fullness at the lowest point uh, rather than at a slightly higher point. But all I can say is that this has worked for me. I have friends who weigh and measure because they say, I don't know when I'm full. I have no idea when I'm even beginning to be full. 
And so I need to weigh and measure to know exactly how much I'm taking in my body. I need to spend 10 or 15 minutes planning my food during the day so I don't have to worry about it any other time. Perfect, different for me, but who cares? It works for them. So there are volume issues and then there are specific food issues. So, and you have to be careful with that because you might, but you also have to be careful about ingredients. Prevalent in OA is flour and sugar. And I'll tell you this story. I remember speaking uh, at a meeting once and a woman came up to me and said, uh, I, I said, you have, to, you have to reach a healthy body weight. Uh, and she said, I've been absent for 11 years and I haven't reached a healthy body weight. What have you got to say for that? I said, well, what are you abstaining from? She said, sugar, I haven't had sugar for 11, 11 years. I said, um, let me ask you a simple question. Imagine that here's a pound of sugar, a bag of sugar in front of you. And here's a tablespoon. And I'm forcing you to eat six tablespoons of sugar. Would you eat that whole bag? Could you prevent yourself from eating that whole bag? I said, I wouldn't eat the whole bag. I couldn't eat that whole bag. I said, well, maybe it's not the sugar. Name me a binge food. She said, donuts. I said, oh, there is another ingredient, donuts. She said, flour, that's my problem, flour. I said, okay, here's a bag of flour. Here's a pound of flour. And I'm going to give you, force you to eat six tablespoons of flour. Are you going to want to eat the whole bag? I said, I couldn't even eat one tablespoon of flour. That was an unfair question, by the way, when I look back, because I could have said, you mix it with water. Could you eat that? You, you boil the, mix, the mixture and you, you end up with a kind of a pasta. Would that get you going without putting anything on it? Some people would answer yes to that. And if they answer yes to that, I would say, that might be a texture issue. It might be that you love the feeling of fusilli and rotinis and spaghettis. It may be that the motion of your teeth on, these, on this pasta, the softness and the slight uh, al dente quality, uh, plus the various shapes might create a craving in you. Or it might be what you put on it. It may be the Alfredo sauce you're putting on the, uh, the pasta. You say you're addicted to bread. Maybe it's what you put on the bread, the peanut butter, the jam, the honey. You know, you have to know what you're eating. You have to know all the ingredients. Anyway, so I said to her, there's another ingredient, donuts. And she said, what's that? I said, fat. Donuts are deep fried fat. You put fat in the donuts and then you deep fry them. And she walked away from me. And I can't tell you the number of people I have met in this fellowship over my 35 years in this fellowship who have abstained from sugar and flour. You go out to a restaurant, the waiter comes with the bun, you know, the basket of buns. I eat buns. Uh, comes with the bat. Take it away. We can't have any bread here. We can't have any bread here. Then the waiter brings an American style baked potato, which is about three feet long or whatever. And, uh, you know, do you want butter? Oh, yes. Do you want uh, bacon bits on it? Yes. Do you want sour cream on it? Yes. And they have not reached a healthy body. And there's no wonder to me why. If you said to them, are you addicted to potatoes? They would have said no. Um, they, and they think it's sugar is their only issue. Now, I, I think sugar is an issue for many, many people. And personally, for me, sugar is an issue, but not the same kind of issue because it doesn't create cravings in me. I, I don't like sugar. I've been avoiding sugar for a long time. Therefore, I can have some sugar in something and it doesn't turn me on. I know when I've had too much because I get a kind of a horrible high feeling similar to when I drink. I don't like it. 
but other people get a feeling that maybe it's more similar to alcohol. But look at the other ingredients before you say it's only sugar. That's all I'm saying. I think we miss the idea of fats. Um, and and uh, you know there have been books written about how the fast food industries knows that you mix a lot of fat with a little bit of sugar and a little bit of salt, and you play with the amount of salt so that it's salty, like French fries and cheeseburgers and things like that, or you add, but, but there's some sugar in that, or you have a bunch of sugar, like the milkshakes and the pies, but there's some salt in that too. And it's all this sweet spot, as it were, between the salt and the sugar that gives you, uh, with the combined with the fat, that gives you a problem. I think for many people, fat's a problem, but not for everyone. But I go through a cross-examination of my sponsees. I don't tell them what they can't eat. And if they say my only problem is volume, I accept it after I cross-examine. You know, after I really ask them questions, maybe that's true. You know, I say I'm not addicted to radishes, but if you put radishes next to a creamy sauce, a creamy dressing, I would eat a lot of radishes as a means of getting the dressing. Same with bread. Bread itself doesn't, doesn't give me an addictive feeling other than bread that contains a lot of fat uh, in it. And there are breads that are more like cakes than breads. Um, and they give, they do that for me because of the fat in them, or the butter in them, actually. So um, it's 7.30, uh, my time, 8.30, your time. And what I'd, I'm happy to do, if you'd like, is to have anyone talk about, you know, where they are. And, um, you know, we, we, we don't have more than 10 or 15 minutes because I have other things I have to talk about. But if anyone wanted to talk for about 10 or 15 minutes about plan of eating or, or ask me to help them with their plan of eating as a sort of a, an example, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, and I know that someone um, is going to monitor this and tell me whom to, whom to, uh, uh, whom to uh, call on. Who is doing that? Hi, this is Kira. I'll be calling on names. Hi, everyone. Um, I see Dorit's hand is up. Okay, Dorit, could you unmute yourself and talk? Hi, my name is Dorit, actually. Oh, Dorit. I know that. I've met you before, haven't I? Yes. Okay. Sorry. Hi. And uh, I'm a compulsive overeater. I've been in OA for three and a half weeks now. And oh, I haven't but met I... you before. Sorry. <laughs> it wasn't me, another Dorit. Oh. Um, I've been on a food plan for two years because two years ago I weighed almost 300 pounds and found out that I was very, very diabetic. Um, and my doctor put me on a food plan. And that same week, my friend's brother lost his two feet to diabetes. So it scared me enough to adhere to a food plan for two years, but I was white knuckling it for two years. And then my doctor said, Dorit, you're drinking too much water. You're going to collapse because your electrolytes are all out of whack. I went to see her because I started fainting from drinking too much water because the only way that I could maintain my diet basically is to drink water by the bottle, bubbly water by the bottle. And so um, 
I have a sponsor and I commit to her to not drink from a bottle and to keep to the food plan that my doctor gave me. And, um, but it's a very restricted plan because what I've done is just taken one day of the whole food plan that they gave me. And I just do it every day uh, because I can't, I get so overwhelmed thinking about making foods and buying foods that I just, I can't do it. So the only way I've been able to do it is to eat the same thing exactly every single day. And my dietitian says that I have to add to that, but I'm so desperately afraid of being overwhelmed again and of eating something that I might binge on. Um, because the binging hasn't stopped. Like I, like you were saying, Lori, um, I stopped drinking the water three weeks ago to be OA abstinent. And I started eating gum. By the, <laughs> like I just went to the store today and I bought six packets of gum. <laughs> so anyway, if you have any thoughts on that, I would really appreciate your ideas. Um, are you eating anything that you think, uh, what you, which you are eating now, that causes you any cravings? Or do you think that what you're eating is safe? I mean, it may not be healthy, but it's safe for you. Um, I think that I've eliminated everything except peanut butter. And I just eliminated peanut butter this week, but I still have the cravings. Oh, no, I understand that. It may be the obsession as much as the cravings, but, but is there anything? So you're pretty sure that you've eliminated the foods that you, you know, mm -hmm. okay. But you probably have eliminated more than you need to in terms of the foods. Let's distinguish between a diet and a plan of eating. You have to follow a certain kind of diet to prevent, to lose weight and to prevent your diabetes from hurting you, right? And, and, you know, just as I have a vegan diet, I still can't eat deep fried tofu, you know, uh, even though it's vegan. And I can't eat French fries, even though aside from McDonald's, it's vegan. You know, they use, some of them use lard in their stuff. I wouldn't eat that. But, you know, there's a lot of vegan food that I don't eat and I can't eat. I, I don't eat vegan cheese because it's too much fat. Um, so my, my, my real response is, my response to anyone who says I'm worried that I'll get worse or that I'll, you know, I, I still have these cravings is that if you work the steps quickly, you will gain sanity and then you will be able to take a much more sane look without fear at what it is that you can eat and what you can't eat. You know, I, what I say to people normally as sponsees is people talk about there's red light, uh, amber light and yellow light foods. The yellow light ones are ones you have to be careful about, you have to monitor. I say, while you're working the steps before you finish step nine, all the yellow, put it into the red, eliminate everything. When in doubt, leave it up. I worry about your health and I'm not giving you health advice. If your dietitian and your doctor say you must eat certain things uh, more than what you are eating, then you should be eating those things and really working hard at eating them in a way that you know doesn't cause you cravings or making sure that what you're eating, what they say you're eating is chosen 
out of maybe a whole bunch of things that you choose the ones that you know won't cause you cravings, okay? Maybe it's not spiced or maybe it's not, you know, I, I don't know what. And, and whatever support you need to keep abstinent while you work the steps, but work the steps as quickly as you can. By the time you finish step nine, you won't want that stuff. And then you can look at whether you can have it for your health. Great. Does that make sense? It does. So I'll give you this example. I eliminated nuts for years because of the high fat content. I had some blood pressure problems and I read somewhere that nuts would, would help me. Certain kinds of nuts would help me. I experimented, I was saying, I discussed with my doctor, then I experimented with unsalted nuts. I could eat them, they didn't cause cravings in me. Salted nuts killed me, would have killed me. I'd never had them, but they would have killed me. So it's the kind of thing, insanity, we can make decisions that are different from the decisions we make when we're insane. And we're insane until we finish step nine, all right? But make sure right. you eat healthy, I mean, my goodness. You know, I'm an old man. I, I look at you. You look, you look like my daughter. I just worry <laughs> about you. <laughs> you know, does that help? But hurry up, hurry up and work the steps. That's what's important because the steps will give you the sanity. Okay. Thanks. Anyone else? We don't currently have hands up. Does anyone want to raise their hand now? Maybe one more person if anyone wants to, or I can go on. Oh, we have Jenny. Okay. Hello. Hi. I'm Jenny, compulsive overeater. Um, so I was excited to hear that you are vegan. I have been vegan now for almost a year and I have eliminated sugar and flour for about 12 years and high fats for maybe three years. And now I'm trying to figure out what are the parameters around eating because I find myself hungry more often on a vegan diet. Oh, you're muted. Where are you on the steps? Um, I've gone through them multiple times and I sponsor. Have you, so you've reached uh, this neutrality, the freedom from the bondage of food and all that, right? Yeah. So when I think about Great. things that okay. have sugar or flour, no desire for them. Terrific. All right. My response to you, and I'll talk about this in more detail, is that I would do a step 10 on the issue and put those things down as a resentment. So well, tell I, me more about that. Well, I will discuss that when I get to step four tomorrow, because step okay. 10 is step four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. And I'll be saying that a resentment is anything that bothers you. It's uh, that's all oh, in I mind is bothering okay. you. So a resentment is I seem to want, I seem to be hungry on my vegan diet. I mean, the simple solution, simple answer that that pops in my mind, it may not be right for you, but it may be right for, for because I don't get that. But if I began to feel that, I might say to myself, well, I should be eating instead of three times a day, maybe I should be eating smaller amounts four times a day or five times a day. You know, maybe I do get hungry. You know, I mean, that happens. Maybe the quantities you're eating aren't enough. It depends on where you are at a healthy body weight. It may be that you are getting cravings because you still are eating something that is causing you cravings and you don't, you're not aware of it. I mean, there are all these possibilities that, that you may not be aware of. I, I watch what I eat so much. I mean, I have eliminated things from my eating that are absolutely healthy and that are vegan. Yeah. Uh, because I, I know that they cause me cravings because they're too much like things that used to cause me cravings. Um, so 
I, I think that uh, a step 10 is I'll be discussing, I'll be discussing steps four through nine tomorrow and then step 10 on Sunday. Uh, but, but doing a step 10 is what recovered people do to keep in fit spiritual condition. I hadn't thought about it in terms of, nine. yeah, I hadn't thought about it in terms of that. So that's very helpful. Thank you. Okay. All right. Well, uh, is there anyone else or should I uh, go on? No hands oh, up at this time. No, I, a very nice uh, message from an old friend of mine. Um, so the, the plan of eating has to be tailor-made. And I can tell you the number of times that I meet people who say, my sponsor won't sponsor me if I don't eliminate X or Y. I said to myself, what is going on in our fellowship that, that we have people whose job it is to carry the message to those who still suffer, not those who suffer the same things, but those who still suffer the, the addiction. You know, what if someone said, my real binge drink was gin and vodka? You know, I have, I do drink beer and my, the beer, I've eliminated beer as well because I'm an alcoholic, but I just miss gin and vodka. And someone says, well, I will only sponsor you if you abstain, you know, and if you have a problem with uh, uh, rye and, and scotch. I, you know what I'm saying? Like, you got a problem? I'm here to sponsor you. You don't have to adopt my plan of eating. And I, I sponsor people with all kinds of, I, I sponsor people whose only eating behavior they say is overeating. They just eat too much. They have volume issues. And for them, their solution is to weigh and measure their food. And they can eat things. One of my mentors in this pro program who passed away a year ago, he used to be able to eat a pat of butter if he went out for, to a restaurant. Did him no harm whatsoever. Then there's a rail, many years abstinent. I could do that, but he could. So who am I to say that you should abstain from butter? You know, not me. I say, look at these things. So I... I don't like this idea of telling people what they sh uh, should, uh, should uh, uh, adhere to. And our fellowship as the group conscience says you shouldn't. Okay, that's what's really important. Is that it's wrong for a sponsor to tell their sponsee what they can't eat. It's absolutely proper for a sponsor to say, are you sure about that? You know, absolutely. Really look deep down in your heart. Because, you, you know, from my point of view, from my experience, not my point of view with my friend who died by suicide, is if you're not honest with yourself about your food, how can you be honest with yourself about steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, which will give you the recovery you need? I mean, honesty is honesty. And the big book we'll talk about in chapter five, rigorous honesty. And you have to be rigorously honest. If you're lying about your food and lying to yourself, uh, you know, we, we have a friend who's a crystal meth addict and, and he keeps thinking that harm reduction will do it. Uh, you know, he can live in a place and, you know, he can occasionally have crystal meth. All of his friends, he's had a friend who's died by crystal meth who believed exactly the same thing. It's a horrible addiction. And uh, anyone who thinks that harm reduction works for an addict is silly. Um, so... Make sure that you eliminate what you have and look carefully at your eating behaviors and distinguish the eating behaviors, which are volume issues, from the food behaviors. Sometimes, sometimes you overeat things 
not for the volume, but because of what they are, of the composition of the, the ingredients or the texture or something like that. Sometimes you overeat them or undereat them because you have a, you are addicted to eating behaviors of overeating and undereating. And, and so people say, I overeat anything. Well, I question them. What do you overeat that you say anything? Salad, salad with dressing or salad without dressing? If it's with dressing, I'll say, could you overeat salad without dressing? Oh no, I'll say you're addicted to the dressing. You know, the salad is a medium to the for the dressing. Um, but if they say I could eat just lettuce, I could eat uh, leaf lettuce, uh, you know, until it's all gone, I say, oh, you, you've got a volume issue, that's for sure. Or maybe it's a chewing issue. For me, it's a chewing issue. I, I, someone has a smell, I, Amy is doing something, I don't quite see what she's saying, but okay, okay. Um, so um, all these possibilities are things that you have to examine and be very careful in your analysis of and get help from someone who has more experience. But once you adopt it, then, then you have a real problem. And that is that you're in a race with your mind. Either your mind, oh, on the nose, I see you're saying on the nose like that, okay. Uh, either your mind is gonna persuade you that you can go back to what you know you should be abstaining from, or else you're gonna finish step nine and your mind will be sane and you won't go back. So you're in a race. And we don't often accept that in a way. And we leisurely go through the steps, you know, a little bit at a time. And everyone tells us we've got to read this chapter and discuss this chapter in excruciating detail. And if we relapse, my goodness, we've got to go back and answer another 70 questions and, uh, you know, all these kinds of things. And ultimately, you know, when I have sponsees who relapse, I say, what mistakes did you make, make that led you to this relapse? Let's look at your plan of eating. Maybe you haven't eliminated all you should be eliminating. And let's see what decisions you made that you can predict will lead you to, re, re, to picking up the wrong stuff and what strategy you can uh, adopt to avoid those decisions, those choices, so that you won't reach that level of reaching for that stuff. And now, are you desperate? Oh boy, am I desperate. I thought I had the world by the tail and now I'm, I realize I'm, I'm worse than I thought. I say, well, that's step one. Why do you have to read the doctor's opinion anymore? You know you've got a problem. Go on. Let's go on. Let's get on to past two, on to three, on to four, because you're in a race with your mind. So let me, um, let me go on, and I'm going to share a bit more, and then we can open up for some questions. Ah, uh, sure. Okay. So here's the problem in a nutshell. The physical allergy. An allergy is an abnormal physical reaction to something. In my case, it's my binge foods and my binge eating behaviors. With other people, maybe only eating behaviors. They may be restricting eating behaviors or binge eating behaviors. With other people, maybe only binge foods and not eating behaviors. With most of us, it's a combination, but not with all of us. We're, we can be at any end of the spectrum. And, and with anorexics, it might solely be uh, restriction. Once I start eating my binge food or indulging in my binge eating behaviors, I find it almost impossible to stop indulging it. The mental obsession. An obsession is an idea which takes control over all other ideas. In my case, if I've stopped eating my binge foods or indulging my binge eating behaviors, in other words, if I'm sober, if I'm abstinent, 
My mental obsession gives me reasons to go back to eat the binge foods or indulge in my eating behaviors. So in a nutshell, I can't stop once I've started and I can't stop from starting it. That is step one. In a nutshell, I am powerless because once I stop and I'm, I'm on a diet, my mind will give me reasons to return. And the big book talks, two and a half chapters are devoted to this. Um, and we'll go through them in, 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 in quickly, but we'll go through them. So the real problem is living sober, living abstinent, because our real problem is in our mind, not our body. Any person who has a disability, who is sane, accepts the disability and lives with it. Some people take longer to put on their clothes in the morning than it takes me. They don't pretend that they're putting on their clothes and walk out without any clothes on. They take the time that's necessary. And people, again, with glasses, they don't pretend they don't need glasses. They accept their disabilities or their different abilities, if you will. It, it, I mean, it doesn't matter what you call them. They accept the differences of their bodies from normality, whatever norm, normalcy means. But we, and we do, we say, oh yeah, no, I'm different. I, I can't drink at all. I can't eat popcorn or butter popcorn at all. And then someone says, we'll have some, you know, this is organic popcorn. You know, the, the butter is uh, free range butter. You know, the cows were treated like, like, like gods by, you know, blessed by the Dalai Lama, you know, just have some because it's, it's healthy. Um, oh, okay. You know, and you say, oh, okay. And suddenly what you know you can't eat, your mind forgets and you eat it. And if, you, if you've ever experienced that in any, at any time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some people suffer greatly, have suffered greatly in, 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 in their lives. OA is full of people who have suffered horrible sexual and physical abuse as children or as adults. Horrible. And uh, I, I've been so lucky not to have, had, have experienced that. Um, and of course, their emotions are at play there. Of course, their emotions are so raw and so difficult to deal with and their feelings of all kinds of feelings. I, I, I can speak uh, about this a bit. I, the last 10 years of my professional career was spent interviewing people who were victims of sexual and physical abuse as, as young children. And I met hundreds and hundreds of people um, who told me their stories. And so I, 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 I've become quite um, familiar and vulnerable to those stories actually. But um, the feelings of shame and guilt for what an adult, a responsible adult did to them as six, when they were six years old and beyond, uh, you know, unable to defend themselves or they will deal with anything. Uh, these are deep emotional feelings which, which can take over people. And of course, many people revert to food to hide and to numb their feelings, but it never works. I mean, isn't that the reality? And the big book points that out, it doesn't work. It doesn't numb your feelings. The, the more you try to have it numb your feelings, the more you find it doesn't ultimately work. It just makes you feel worse about yourself. And, and so these reasons that we give, whether they seem to be good reasons because of, of all the harms we've suffered in our lives, or whether they seem to be good because they're just absurd, it's free. It'll go to waste. Everyone else can have some. They're looking at you. 
Everyone laughs at you. You might as well. You broke your diet already. You might as well, you know, keep on having more. Um, all, all these reasons, which are just absurd. Um, they, your mind just clicks. So we'll go into this in, in some detail. I'm going to skip Bill's story. I wish I didn't have to, but I'm going to. Uh, it's a wonderful story, uh, but I do not have time to talk about it. Um, so we will go on and we will talk about uh, all these wonderful things. This is where Dr. Silkworth worked, the town's hospital. There is a solution, page 17 of the big book. We have Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were once just as hopeless as Bill. Nearly all have recovered, not are recovering. They have solved the drink problem. They have solved the drink problem. What brings us together? A tremendous fact for every one of us, we've discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. It's not that we suffer from the same addiction, is that we have found the same solution. And that solution comes from working the steps and helping others upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. Helping others is, this, is the touchstone of our recovery, we will see uh, um, the big book say. Uh, we must think of others and not of ourselves. And so the common solution is the key. And that's what this book is about, the common solution. But why, why do we have our problem? Doubtless you are curious, page 20, to discover how and why in the face of expert opinion to the contrary, we have recovered, I'm gonna beat you over the head with it, I guess, from a hopeless condition of mind and body, always mind and body you will see the consistency throughout the big book that we have this dual problem. It's not necessarily, it is the body. Once we start, we can't stop, but it's the mind. It's not just emotional. It can be mental. It can be just absurd or stupid. It doesn't have to be emotional. We could have gone through therapy for 20 years and have solved all of our, all, all of our emotional issues and someone will come up to us one day and say, there's a new flavor of ice cream on the market. And boy, it tastes good. And here's a free sample and say, oh, I can have some. And that absurdity, knowing that eating some ice cream will lead you to more and more ice cream and all the other binge foods in your life, but forgetting it at that one moment, that's the condition of the mind. So what do I have to do? And we'll tell you what we've done. That's the answer. The answer is, we'll tell you what we've done. And then they say, they distinguish between moderate drinkers, hard drinkers, and what the big book calls the real alcoholic. And I think this is key because the definition of an alcoholic from a medical point of view or psychiatric point of view, if I understand the diagnostic statistical manual well enough, I may not, it is a combination of frequency and quantity and detriment. In other words, the more you drink, uh, the more often you drink and the, um, and the harm that it does to your life, the more you fall under the definition of an alcoholic, or it's the same now, they, you know, um, uh, what it, it's called binge eating disorder. 
is similar to that. But the big book makes a big distinction between a hard drinker and a moderate drinker and a real alcoholic. And the big book says the real alcoholic may start off as a moderate drinker and may or may not become a hard drinker. In other words, both a moderate drinker and a hard drinker may be an alcoholic, but aren't necessarily an alcoholic. My, my daughter went to a, a school, a residential college in Canada, where it was on the border between two provinces, states to some of you, one of which had a 19-year-old drinking age, one of which had an 18. She was in an 18-year-old drinking age. All these kids would come from the 19-year drinking age at the age of 18, and they'd live in residence, and they would drink. And she would describe, I mean, she was the only non-drinker among them. Uh, it was such a small town, here's a joke, that she was known as a designated walker. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, they, would, they would have parties galore on the weekends. They would drink to the point of vomiting and then drink more. And they'd glory in the amount that they could drink. Not one of them, and they would be classified as alcoholics. It hurt their school year. It, it hurt them in so many ways. The amount they drank was enormous. But the, none of them became alcoholics. You know, they, they grew up, they didn't drink anymore right, to any excess. But the real alcoholic is the person who loses all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. So has the body problem, the physical body problem. Why does he behave like this? If hundreds of experiences have shown him, and now they're going into the issue not of the body problem, but the mind problem. If hundreds of experiences have shown him that one drink means another debacle, a, a horrible uh, uh, experience with all of its attendant, its ongoing suffering and humiliation, why does he take that one drink? Why can't he stay in the water wagon? And they say, we don't know. We cannot answer the riddle. We are not therapists. We are not uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, doctors. We, we have a solution. We have no idea why the problem occurs. We know what the problem is. And we know we have a solution to the problem. And they go on, we say that no, we know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink, as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. We're equally positive that once he takes any alcoholic, any alcohol, whatever into his system, something happens both in the bodily and mental sense, body, more, more, more. Mental, I can't fight you, I give up. Which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. So that they go on and they say this, these observations would be academic if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle of motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind. And they go on, if you ask him where he started, he'll offer you any one of a hundred alibis. Sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility. They make some sense. It feels better. I'm feeling such an ache in my heart. But none of them really make sense. They sound like the philosophy of a man who having a headache beats himself on the head with a hammer so they can't feel the ache. In their hearts, they really do not know why they do it. There is the obsession that somehow, someday, they will beat the game. But they often suspect they're down for the count. So it's beating the game. The fact is, page 24, most alcoholics have lost the power of choice our willpower becomes non-existent. We cannot bring into our consciousness with sufficient force 
the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. This is our real problem in our mind. We cannot stop from starting again. Somehow our mind is going to find a reason to go back. And uh, they say, um, they go on, when this sort of thinking is fully established, he has probably placed himself beyond human aid unless locked up they die or go permanently insane. But there is a solution. Almost none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession, page 25, the confession of shortcomings, which the process requires for a successful consummation. But we saw that it really worked in others and we'd come to believe in the hopelessness of futility of life as we had been living it. That's a perfect description of step two and step one. It really worked in others. And we came to believe in the hopelessness of futility of life as we had been living. That's step one. Step two is it worked in others. When therefore we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, there was nothing left for us but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. We have found much of heaven. Now, I, I, by the way, I heard it once said, if something is laid at your feet, to pick it up, you have to kneel. And although I am not a religious person, I think that there's this sense of humility that you have to sort of kneel and say, please, I need help. It, make, it makes sense to me anyway. Um, the great fact is just this and nothing less. We've had deep and effective spiritual experiences, which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, to our fellows, and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered to, into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. That's how I read it, other people, hearts and lives. Now, you'll notice this footnote fully explained when they talk about spiritual experiences. Well, in the second printing in 1941 of the first edition of the big book, they put in an appendix. And this appendix has never been taken out. That's another joke. You can have it. Um, and this appendix is called Spiritual Experience. And it's found on page 567 of uh, the current edition of the big book, fourth edition, and 569 of the, um, of the third and second edition. I'm not going to go into this detail, but I just want to say they define spiritual experience as a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism. So different from finding God, so different from the stories that you read in the book and in a lot of the stories in the back of the book, people falling to their knees. If there is a God, let him find me now, let him help me now, or the punch in the head and you're healed. Because the problem was the original edition of the big book had people having these vital sudden experiences where they just gave up and they just felt God flow within them. Bill talked about um, feeling as if he's on the top of a mountaintop with a cold wind blowing through him. And he says, God comes to most men gradually, but to me, he came suddenly. And so they decided they had to put in this appendix to say that it's really very simple, that it's not this necessarily this sudden emotional, huge spiritual sudden experience, it is simply, however you want to describe it, whether it comes quickly or it comes slowly, it is as simple as 
a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism. That definition fits me. I have not found God in this program. I haven't, I'm not one of those people who says, oh, to whom people say, oh, don't worry, act as if and you will end up believing. I don't believe. I don't believe there's any spirit of the universe or creator at all. I have had a spiritual experience, a spiritual awakening in this, in this fellowship. And I'll, I'll discuss that tomorrow when I discuss uh, uh, step two. Big Book is brilliant on this issue. So that's what's really important. And they talk about most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. So it's a personality change sufficient to overcome, bring about recovery from alcoholism. Uh, no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery. That's what we need, willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness. Okay. There's Roland Hazard, long story with Dr. Jung. Wish we could talk about it, but we're not going to talk about it. The chapter more about alcoholism on page 30. This is a chapter which is all about the obsession of the mind. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think he's bodily and mentally different. So a real alcoholic is someone who is bodily and mentally different. Sorry about that. Therefore, it is not surprising our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain, futile attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control a bounce and enjoy, enjoy only a little bit, his drinking is a great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence, so that's the harm reduction issue for an addict, which, you know, that somehow they can just reduce it. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. We learned that we had to fully concede to ourselves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we're like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. We have lost the ability to control our compulsive eating. It, it doesn't happen, it happens occasionally, it happens for a period of time that we control it, but then we lose it. We are convinced to a man, woman, person, that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. I do believe this, I believe that my illness, my addiction is doing push-ups outside of this room. I believe that if I did eat ice cream, it would be worse for me than it ever would. That it would be shorter, shorter time before I ended up eating the whole tub. I don't want to find out. We're like men who have lost their legs. They never grow new ones. How many of you have seen uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail? And remember the Black Knight who keeps getting his arms chopped off and his legs cut, chopped off. And then this great British style says, oh, a mere scratch. Let's keep on fighting. Let's bite each other. You know, and said, I just cut off your arms. I just cut off your legs. Oh, a mere wound, a mere flesh wound. That's, that's how we sound like. I'm not that bad. An old AA story about these um, uh, AA years ago on a 12-step call. They told, go to this apartment. Uh, and they go to this apartment in a shoddy, horrible, rundown part of town. And the door is open. 
and they walk in and there's nothing there. There's no furniture. There's nothing except what looked like a pile of clothes in the corner. And they go up to the pile of clothes and there's a person there. Uh, and it smells, awful smells and awful vomit, just terrible, horrible circumstances. A voice says, who are you? We're here from Alcoholics Anonymous. We're here to, here to help. And the voice says, hey, hey, I'm not that bad. You know, and we're, and so many of us are like that. I remember talking to a guy who said he weighed 375 pounds and he wouldn't meet me, but I talked to him on the phone. At a certain point, we got along well, we were talking. I said, well, if you're as fat as, as, as you are, he says, what makes you think I'm fat? I said, if you weigh 375 pounds, unless you're 10 feet tall, you're fat. He said, oh no, I'm not fat. I'm chubby, I'm plump, but I'm not fat. Three years later, that guy died of obesity, morbid obesity. You know, this, 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 I'm not that bad kind of thing is, is, is killing people. So they go on, they give you tests. Can anyone test themselves? Yes. Um, you can quickly diagnose yourself on page 31 going on page 32. Step over to the nearest bar room and try some controlled drinking. Try to drink and stop abruptly. Go, go to a place that serves your binge food and try and eat half of it. Try it two or three or four times and see what happens. That's one. That's the body test, right? They give an example of a man of 30. He stopped drinking for 25 years and he thought his 25 years had given him the complete permission to be able to drink again because he'd been so good for 25 years, he was dead within three years. And they say, most of us have believed that if we remain sober for a long stretch, we could drink normally. Here was a man who at 55, found he was just where he had left off at 30. Uh, if we are planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind or any lurking hidden notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol. I want to point out these next two paragraphs, page 33 at the bottom, going on to page 34. They are addressed to young people and to women. They are the big books attempt, written by white Christian males who had been business people, to reach out to people who were not necessarily white, were not Christians, were not uh, old, older men. They did their best within the confines of the time to say, you may be an alcoholic, even if you're not like us, but you may be young, you may even be a person who can handle their liquor some of their time, but can't handle it all the time. Learn from us. We were like you once too. You may be a woman. You may be at home. You may not be in the workforce because that was the predominant thing about women in those days. And yet you may be, have the same problems. You may also be an alcoholic. They tried their best to be inclusive. And then they give you another test. You can quit for a period of time. If you're real, if anyone questions whether he has entered this dangerous setting, let him try leaving liquor alone for one year. There's another test. That's the mind test. One test is the body test. Can you keep from eating all of what's given to you of your binge foods? And the other test is the mind test. Can you just leave it alone for a year? Chances are you can't if you're a real addict. And that certainly has been true for me. I've never, I don't think I've ever kept to a diet for a year. And then they say, 
this is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it, this utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or wish. They say, how can we help our readers determine whether they're one of us? Well, you could quit for a period of time, that would be helpful, but maybe we can do this. We shall describe some of the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking, for obviously this is the crux, the head, the nut, the nut of the problem. What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time, what wonderful words, the desperate experiment of the first drink. Friends who have reasoned with him after a spree, which has brought him to the point of divorce or bankruptcy are mystified when he walks directly into Loon into saloon. Why does he? What is he thinking? They now give us three examples. The first is Jim. I'll summarize. He had a really bad day. He got so drunk over the years that he lost his family car uh, sales business. They sober him up in AA. He makes a beginning, but he doesn't go far enough. He probably makes, does step three and, you know, goes to meetings, but he probably hasn't made a real inventory. He probably hasn't made his amend. It's just he made a beginning. He goes to work for the same company he used to own. He has a bad day. He has words with the new owner, with the boss. It says it wasn't serious. He decides to go into the country and see one of his prospects for a car. He feels hungry. He didn't want to drink. He thought he'd get a sandwich. So he goes to a place he'd eaten many times before. He sits down at a table and orders a sandwich and a glass of milk. Still no thought of drinking. Page 36, I ordered another sandwich, decided to have another glass of milk. Suddenly the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. I ordered whiskey and poured into the milk. Now, this is absurd. It's stupid. It is obviously crazy. Now, whether or not it was a deep emotional issue or not, let's assume it was deeply emotional. He was really feeling resentful. He was really feeling full of self-pity. Life had treated him hard. But the reasoning behind it is, oh, as long as I have it in my milk, it won't hurt me in a full stomach. And then he goes to the asylum because he gets drunk again. He had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic. Page 36, he had all reasons for not drinking. On page 37, we were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if he only mixed it with milk. Whatever, page 37, the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. You know what, I'm, I'm, I want to finish this chapter, so please save your questions and answers for tomorrow, okay? We start at uh, 9 o'clock your time tomorrow. I'll start off with questions and answers relating to today, okay? You may think this an extreme case. To us, it is not far-fetched for this kind of thinking has been characteristic of every single one of us. We sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences, but there's always the curious mental phenomenon. Now, phenomenon, remember, is an occurrence for which there's no explanation. They can't explain why it happened, but it's this curious mental twist that parallel with our sound reasoning, there inevitably always ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. Insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, right? So you have this, I, this notion of parallel thinking. On the one side, and, and you can, if you're a Disney person, you grew up with Disney cartoons, they had a lot of 
good angels and bad angels on shoulders, right? And the good angel would say one thing, bad angel would say another. So imagine the good angel. Don't eat this. It's bad for you. The last 30 times you ate this, you overate to the extent that you gain more and more weight. You're going to die of your compulsive eating. You're going to die of your undereating. Don't vomit. Don't give it up. You need the nutrition. Don't restrict yourself. Don't do this. Don't do this. You know how bad it is on the one side. And I believe what they describe on the other side is a voice that says, come on. As simple as that. Come on, have some. You know, it doesn't need to have a reason. It could be, it could be emotional, deeply emotional. Yes. And they say that some circumstances, we've gone out deliberately to get drunk, feeling ourselves justified by nervousness, anger, worry, depression, jealousy, or the like, or the like. But even in this type of beginning, we're obliged to admit our justification for a spree was insanely insufficient in the light of what always happened. And they talk about a jaywalker. Here's the, the, the third example. <clears throat> the jaywalker who gets a thrill out of jaywalking and he keeps getting into accidents and he keeps harming himself more and more and he keeps going into the hospital and he keeps jaywalking he gets out of the hospital swearing he's never going to jaywalk again he keeps on jaywalking and finally his family leaves his wife gets a divorce he's held up to ridicule he goes into an asylum he re but the day he comes out he races in out in front of a fire engine which breaks his back wouldn't such a man be crazy and then they say on page 38, you may think our illustration is too ridiculous, but is it? We who've been through the ringer have to admit if we substituted alcoholism, if we substituted compulsive eating for jaywalking, the illustration would fit us exactly. However intelligent we may have been in other respects, where alcohol has been involved, we've been strangely insane. It's strong language, but isn't it true? And then to give another example, someone who says, oh yeah, now that you tell me, that I can't drink any alcohol, or in the case of say, uh, someone who comes to a weight loss program and says, now that you tell me I can never eat ice cream again, because it's a problem, well, I just won't eat ice cream. And they say, huh, page 39, the actual or potential alcoholic will be absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. This is a point we wish to emphasize and re-emphasize to smash home upon our alcoholic readers as it has been revealed to us out of bitter experience. I want to talk about this just for a brief moment. Certain non-alcoholic people who, on page 39, who though drinking foolishly and heavily at the present time are able to stop or moderate because their brains and bodies haven't been damaged as ours were. There are a lot, you know, I went to this way and pay uh, program for a number of years. It wasn't for me because it kept giving me back my binge foods, right? It kept saying you'd have a half a donut or whatever. But the fact is, for many people, it worked. They were able to say, oh, I don't need a 16 ounce steak. I can have a four ounce steak. And that's all the protein I need for my meal. Oh, okay, that's good. I, I don't have to put butter on my potato. It tastes pretty good with just a little bit of salt and pepper and some green onions. And suddenly, They've developed a way of living that allows them not to, not to overeat. The same with all kinds of people who drink too much. Maybe they are drinking to drown their sorrows. But when they see that drowning their sorrows hurts their family, they say, I'm not going to drink anymore. That's true for a lot of people. Maybe some people just need a, a, um, a support group. And, and that support group can just be 
people you phone, people you talk to. I'm about to eat this. Can you help me? Oh, don't eat it. It's not good for you. Oh, thank you. And they don't eat it. Well, that's fine too. They don't need us. They need a support group. But the 12 steps are for people who can't have control their minds and their minds control them. And their minds keep giving them an excuse, even though deep in their hearts, they know the excuse stinks. And here's the example of Fred. He's an accountant. Uh, he says, now that you tell me I can't ever have so much as one glass uh, of beer, I will just not drink beer. He goes to Washington. He had a great day for a client. He's just a happy camper. And he goes to his hotel after this day. The thought came to mind, it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner and he orders a cocktail, bang, he's back in the asylum. This is a guy I good day. And the, the whole point of this chapter more about alcoholism is it doesn't matter what the reason is. You know, and, and the thing I can say, and I'll say this much more in much more detail and I hope even more eloquently, for people who have suffered greatly, as children especially, suffered abuse, physical, sexual, emotional, um, is that not only are these bad reasons for going back, not only when you work the steps after abstaining, will you overcome those reasons and you will no longer, you, 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 they will no longer be sane reasons. Doesn't mean you'll be fully healed of, of what you need. You might need therapy for that as well, but your mind will be sane no matter, you, you, no matter what reasons you might have given, you will no longer want that. The great aspect of this for people who have suffered greatly is that they will be able to carry the message to other people with a power that I cannot. It's easy for me to say, I've reached this miracle of recovery. I no longer want this stuff. I haven't suffered in the way that many of my friends in OA have suffered. Those who have suffered are able to say, and I have sponsees who say this, hey, when I was a kid, you know, I don't want to go into details. These horrible things happened to me. And they, they will say, they, this was done to me and this was done to, this was done to me. And I don't eat over this. And I don't want to compulsively eat. So you can't use that as an excuse because I've been to the depths that you've been to. And the power of being able to take all the horror that occurred to you and transform it into something that can give you, that can give someone else healing and, 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 and sanity and is something you can use the pain to give someone else health and, and serenity. And this is why the big book says your darkest past becomes your biggest, your greatest possession. Um, no matter how far down the scale you've gone, you will see how your experience can benefit others. The message that can be brought by people who have recovered through the 12 steps to those who still suffer and by people who have suffered greatly in their lives, who've been victims, is so powerful. It's down to the gut. I just wanted to leave that open for you. We'll talk about that much more when we get to steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. So the big book ends in chapter uh, uh, three, more about alcoholism with this. Once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. That's step one. You have the physical problem. Once you start, you can't stop. 
you, if you also have the mental problem, then you're a real addict. The mental problem is you have no effective defense against the first bite or non-bite if you're a restrictor. In other words, you can't stop from starting the addictive behavior or addictive substances or combinations of behaviors and substances. If that's your problem and you identify with it that way, then your step two, his defense must come from a higher power. So tomorrow, we'll start with some questions and answers. If you have any, you might not have any. And we'll go on <coughs> to step two, the chapter, We Agnostics, which is addressed allegedly only to agnostics and atheists, people who don't believe in God or who believe there is no God or people who doubt that there is a God, but is also addressed to believers. There's some very important parts in here which believers need to have answers to. And one of those questions is, if I do believe in God, how come I still am an addict? If, why, why is my belief not helping me? And the big book has an answer to that. In describing what the steps do, the big book explains not only why an atheist or agnostic can find a higher power, but also why people who do believe in a God can't find the higher power without the help of the steps. Even though they believe in it, they have no connection with it. They've lost their connection with the higher power. It's been blocked. So we'll start with that discussion. Uh, then we will go into step three. You will see that step three is just a decision. You can decide to attend a big book study, but if you don't log on, you won't attend it. So a decision is not an action. And we'll discuss what that means. And we'll discuss step four uh, in, in the morning, maybe a little bit in the afternoon. We'll do some interactive stuff in the afternoon on step four. And then uh, we'll do five, six, seven, eight, and nine very quickly. Well, it won't be quick, but we'll do it all by the end of the afternoon tomorrow. We may even go a bit on step 10, but probably not. Uh, so uh, it's 9.30 Eastern Daylight Time. It's 8.30 Central Daylight Time, my time. I don't know what time it is for any, for some of you. It might be other times. But I uh, think that uh, I will stop sharing. And um, I don't know if anyone wants to end, if they were going to have an ending.